Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter. I am joined, as always, by the baby new year to my old man outgoing new year, Brandon. I'm going to take that with full compliments. <laughs> Makes me feel a little bit younger than I am. You are, you are younger than me, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, I guess that says something. How are you doing, Tony? How was your New Year's? <laughs> oh, man, it was quiet. I'm, I'm now of the age where we don't go out. We, we, uh, had to, we, we do a thing with our kids, actually. We go to this pizza joint in South Minneapolis called Pizzeria Lola. Shout out to Pizzeria Lola. Fantastic. Yeah, and we... Uh, we write down with with my three kids and and my spouse Courtney. We write down. Uh, well, we have the list from last year of all the things we were looking forward to. They're not resolutions so much as things we're saying hello to in the new year and things we're saying goodbye to in the old year. And so we read the old ones and then uh, we actually burn those. They throw them in the pizza oven for us and burn <laughs> them up. It's our little. It's, I'm sure it's like not OSHA approved, but they do it anyway. Um, yeah, and it was funny, you know, looking back on some of the things. It was like uh, what we're going to say hello to in 2021. And, you know, like we're going to say hello to the vaccines, actually. A, a COVID vaccine <laughs> was one thing we were – and we were right. The COVID vaccine came. But others was like we're going to say hello to international travel and diff- different stuff. And my boys both have weightlifting goals that they list and stuff like that. So, <laughs> was yeah, that was, it was pretty good. Was there a real face palm one that you that you had from my? Oh school? yeah, I mean, I had some writing goals that I didn't quite achieve. Um, I I I I had two big writing goals last year. I achieved one of the two. So, hey, I'll, 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 that's good. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's all right. That's all right. So yeah, how about you? What'd you do? I did absolutely nothing. Uh, me and my girlfriend <laughs> celebrated midnight according to my watch and then went to bed about 15 minutes later. <laughs> Avoided amateur hour outside. There's no sense in going out. I don't right. understand it. So stayed inside. You. Yeah. Yeah. I think we uh, celebrated New Year's in Newfoundland, which I think would be about 9 p.m. our time. And then went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's New Year's somewhere, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, hey, before I introduce this week's guests, I just want to uh, thank everybody for listening in 2021. And, you know, one thing that's been super fun in the last few weeks, it must have been people felt it over the holidays or, I don't know, they heard something on the podcast that they liked. But I got several emails from listeners um, just thanking me for the podcast and Actually, several of them saying, hey, we should hunt together sometime, or I hunt this kind of thing, or I'm a former pastor. One guy's a former military chaplain who hunts. And so I just want to say to all you listeners, I love it. You can definitely email me. My email is tj at tonyj.net, or you can fill out the contact form at reverendhunter.com, or you can DM me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I respond to all that stuff. I, and I love invitations to go hunt with people. For sure. So, and I keep, I mean, not look, I still have a kid at home, but in, in a year and a half from now, by the, by the, um, by the hunting season of 2023, I'm going to be an empty nester and I'm going to be ready to hit the road and, uh, hunt with people. So yeah, if you, if you want to hunt, let's do it. Send me an email and, and we'll put something on the calendar and get together. So thanks to everybody for that. Um, 
And I'm going hunting tomorrow, actually, Brandon. I really? believe it or not. Yeah, this is I'm going out to South Dakota for the fifth time <laughs> this season. Do you have like a dual citizenship at this point? I really Dakota? should. I should establish residency in South Dakota. Um, yeah, it's funny. I uh you, you get you get two five-day periods with every license you buy in South Dakota as a non-resident. And I had one left over from last year. So I've gone four times this year, but then that means I have one left over now that I need to use. And uh, the weather's looking nice. And my buddy Jorge says his dog is chomping at the bit to get out and hunt. And my dog is chomping at the bit. And so I got nothing on the calendar. And I got enough Best Western reward points to get a couple <laughs> nights free in here on Best Western. So I'm, some people, the, some yeah. people earn those Marriott reward points, but you, a hunter, best oh, Western. Oh, yeah. Best Western, <laughs> best, Western, best Western rewards, baby. That's where it's at. Maybe they'll sponsor the podcast. There you go. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm That's what I'm doing. Cool. Well, that's like fun. Yeah, it's going to be super fun. And people, I'm going to do a bunch. I'm going alone, so I'll... Uh, I'll be doing a bunch of Instagram stories and I'm going to bring my GoPro and wear it on my head a little bit and stuff, which I haven't done yet this year. Cause I've always been with groups and driving guys around. But, uh, since it's just me and my buddy Jorge, there's a little more latitude to be creative out there, which I plan to do. I look forward to the footage. Thanks man. Yeah. Um, Hey, the guests this week are awesome. Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, They've written a book called A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Uh, they are evolutionary biologists, and they look at all kind of everything that's going on in the world today through that lens of evolutionary biology. And I found their book fascinating. They're, they're uh, you know, they are controversial people, Um as anybody who has followed them, they're part of a group of people called the Intellectual Dark Web that includes uh, Brett's brother, and you can you know you can follow him on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, and and but I you know I've always been this way, even when I was a pastor and when and, and in my theological work and stuff. I do not shy away from controversy. I lean into it. I think controversial people are often some of the most interesting people especially in this day and age for people like Heather and Brett to be able to, um, you know, make, make arguments that are not necessarily popular or politically correct. And they're look, they have the diplomas to back them up. They're, they're doing the work, they're doing the research. Um, and I just think it's fascinating. So we talked about all sorts of stuff. We talked about, being meat eaters. We talked about, um, uh, viruses. We talked about hu being human and we talked about organized religion, which is interesting because they are not actively religious people. And yet they, as scientists really see the value and importance of religion in human society. But what's most interesting, I think is that, I mean, they're basically arguing that the things that made us human beings the most successful species ever on this planet, which is our ability to adapt to evolution. In, in some ways, that adaptability, or, or at least the evolution, has outstripped its usefulness. So we get into that, and if that's a thought that intrigues you, I think you'll really like it. I, I really encourage you to look at, look at their book.
You'll see a link for their book in the show notes as well as where you can find each of them on their websites. They also have the Dark Horse podcast, super popular podcast. So they're awesome. And uh, yeah, it's really good stuff. And that's just to kick off 2022, man. We got I got a lot of uh, fun guests lined up for this coming year. I think I think we're going to just keep the ball rolling with the Reverend Hunter podcast. You ready for that, Brandon? I think so. 2022 is looking pretty enlightening, so it'll be fun. I love it. Good. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, share. If you're interested in sponsorship, let us know. We'd love to have you on board. But mainly, just thanks for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Now, here is my conversation with Heather Hine and Brett Weinstein, the authors of A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Hey, Brett and Heather, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, we are very thanks. pleased to be here. Oh, great. I love that you all are doing... I, I listened to your, your uh, interview with Andrew Yang and know that you've been boxed out of... Um, more mainstream press. And I will tell you a funny story. The The last book I wrote for like a major publisher, uh, they sent me to New York and I sat in a hotel room for a week because they kept, um, the, the publisher had a lead that I was going to get on Bill O'Reilly to talk about my book during Holy Week, you know, the Christian Holy Week and talk, which it was about the crucifixion. I just sat in the hotel. I did get on Morning Joe, but they could never get me on. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't think I was boxed out for the same reasons as you. I was boxed out because no one's ever heard of me before. But I know the feeling of being boxed out. Yeah, we are, we are boxed out, I guess, because uh, it, the survival of the narrative depends on us being very terrible. And that, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it all <laughs> proceeds from there. Yeah, well, I, I have to tell you that um, my 21-year-old son... Uh, who's a college student uh, at an Ivy League school in the East, feels very boxed out and is absolutely thrilled that I, I, my stature in his eyes went up a lot because I booked you two to be on my podcast. He's very excited about it. And he's found really a lifeline in the work of you and your whole cohort of, you know, the, the, what the dark web intellectual group. Um, and so he, it, it's been, it, it's kept him, his head in the game at a school like that. That's wonderful. I think one of the things that we have found is that we are finding uh, interesting, amazing adults like you who we wouldn't have had access to before all of this, but it's harder for the, the children and the young adults. Yeah. They have less ability to make the connections that we can make. And so Hearing that and having the possibility that he might be able to make connections through that interest is is fabulous. Yeah. Well, your book is fabulous. I'm really excited to talk to you about it, uh, and I've got some avenues I'd I'd like to go down. But I wonder if for for my listeners, all of whom should of course buy it and read it, uh, if you can give, you must have kind of a. Uh, an elevator pitch for it or what you're trying to do with this book? Sure. I Unfortunately, mean, we probably have eight, which yeah. makes yeah. them not elevator pitches. But there's, <laughs> you, there's you really, want to go and then I'll give one and yeah, we'll there, try. There's really, I think, two, two approaches. The, the central theme of the book is that human beings are the most adaptable species that selection has produced on this planet ever by a wide margin. 
Um, not only are we highly adaptable, but we actually switch niches as the substitute for having a niche of any kind, which is why human populations have done so many different things over the course of human history and prehistory and why even uh, on Earth today you find populations uh, living in, in very different ways. But even despite that amazing capacity to adapt, the rate of change that we are exposing ourselves to outstrips our capacity to change. And so uh, we will all note that we don't live as adults, even in the world in which we grew up. That's a very unusual circumstance. It, it can happen occasionally. A population could, you know, let's say, cross a body of water and land in a new habitat. But to have generation after generation living outside of the habitat in which it grew up, and therefore living in a habitat about which its ancestors knew very little, is simply, it's too high a rate of change for us to keep pace. And so we call this state hyper novelty. And our point is, it is making us sick. It is making us physically sick, psychologically, socially, politically, and in every other way. And we have to rein this process in, or it will be our undoing. Thank you for that. I, I want to start then at the end of the book, uh, with something I was wondering about, uh, th this idea that we have outstripped evolution, that evolution served us very well for millions and millions of years. But now maybe um, using our consciousness and our culture, we need to somehow try to rein in um, uh, uh, evolution. So one of the points you make toward the end of the book is, you know, we, evolution favors growth. And yet uh, our, our human desire to keep growing, 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 particularly like, say, the economy or even the population. See, and now you don't, and this is what I want to ask you about because I'm, I'm married. Um, it's my second marriage. My kids are from my first marriage. My wife has no children. And she made a choice when she was in her teens that she didn't want to have children be, in some, partly because she felt like the resources of the earth are finite and we're pressing against the limits of that. So I wonder if, if that's one of the, things that you don't state explicitly in the book, but where are you at with that? Um, and I, 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 my wife asked me this and I said, well, they had two kids, so maybe they're they think they're going to replace themselves. And that's the responsible thing for human beings to do. Um, do you want to take that or? You go first. Uh, I think this is, it's very important. We get this thing right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say, and you know, Heather and I, my guess is we'll land in the same place, but we're about to find out. <laughs> People who should have kids should have them. The idea that you shouldn't have them because the planet can't take it is absolutely incorrect. We collectively have to rein in the processes that are liquidating the well-being of the planet. But the idea that individuals should do their part by not producing offspring is actually deranging us. It is mm. essentially taking the thing, the organizing principle that has guided humanity, well, uh, for... 10,000 years since the invention of farming for hundreds of thousands of years uh, before that, and really at some level for billions of years that our evolution is stacked on top of, the central organizing principle has been about getting ourselves into the future. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we upend that process, we have no good replacement. So in the book, we do argue 
that we have to take evolution out of the driver's seat, that if we let this mindless process continue to drive, it will cause us to come apart. We will decohere. On the other hand, that does not mean throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We have to carefully define a new purpose for humanity, but it has to be a coherent and reasonable one, and it is most certainly going to involve the production and maybe even more important, the proper raising of children so that they become wise, well-adjusted adults. Yeah, I guess I would just add to that. Um, there, are, there are plenty of individuals who don't want children who, and in, in eras past, they would have felt pressure in the opposite direction, right? You must have children. And that feels like an absurd pressure to be imposing on anyone in this era when there we do have a planet that is finite and the population continues to grow into uh, into numbers that are not frankly sustainable but it's the way that those individuals are living on the planet the footprint that they leave um, that is the biggest issue so um, individuals making decisions that go against what they themselves are feeling in their you know in their hearts minds and souls um, are not likely to live well with those decisions. Mm. Individuals who make those decisions, who actually you know feel feel at one with it and and find the opportunity, perhaps that not having children affords them, wonderful. Yeah. You, know, let, you know that 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 also is an honorable choice. And I think that's you know, one of the messages of the book is we have done so much right in the past, and we are moving into a future that we cannot predict. And some of what is coming is dangerous and some of what is coming is fabulous, but what we should not do is imagine that whatever is fabulous can fully replace what has worked in the past. So we need to build on the foundation, not throw out all of the remarkable things that humans have achieved in the past, be they, you know, a political system like the one that the United States is built on or, um, or, you know, food systems, uh, or, you know, or, or even, you know, healthcare is like spending time outside as a way to retain and get your health. Uh, when new and sometimes amazing treatments come, great, let's use the new and amazing, but on top of what came before. So similarly, if, you know, if, if you, if who, someone does not want children, okay, terrific. But the idea that that individual decision uh, inherently applies to population level processes, I think is an error. Yeah, it's, it, I think the way to sum it up is it's not a virtue. Okay. And I think it is also true that we are so often handed a depauperate slate of possibilities, right? Do you want to live well and ruin the planet or are you okay with, you know, severe austerity, for example? And what we are not told is that there's a third option, which is to live elegantly on the planet, which is something that we have to seek actively and what we say in, in the last chapter of our book is that we literally, at this point in history, do not know how to describe the system that we, we must build. But we do know how to navigate to it and how to prototype our way in that direction. And that's what we should be doing. And if, if that sounds vague, I would point to uh, Buckminster Fuller's excellent description of this process. He coined a term ephemeralization, and mm -hmm. he defined it as the process by which in which by which you can do more and more with less and less until eventually you can do everything with nothing. And of course, you know that was a, a fullerism, and it's it's ironic. But the point is, we all also experience it when you mm -hmm. look at what your phone can do for you. You know, allowing you to navigate any major city in the world as if you were a native 
um, without ever cracking open a, you know, a paper map, that's an amazing thing. It, it's terrible that the device itself has a predatory business model, but we can see, you know, the Library of Alexandria, every map you'll ever need, it's all accessible through this one device. And, you know, how much does it weigh? Like less than a pound. So that process exists. We just have to put it to useful ends rather than allow it to take over our lives and uh, compromise them. Well, I, I wonder on just on that note, as evolutionary biologists who also have, uh, you know, adolescent children, late middle, mid to late adolescent children, this is a battle I fight with my kids all the time because uh, as much as I use my phone, they use their phone much, much more. Uh, and, and they don't know how to read a map, a traditional map. I mean, they, they probably never will. Something's been lost in that. Uh, it's funny because I, I do, we'll get to hunting cause it's something I I'm interested in your thoughts on, but, um, I spent a lot of time in South Dakota hunting pheasants and I've just, because of the grid system on which gravel roads are laid out in the Dakotas, I have a very keen sense of direction uh, when I'm there. And then I can even be absent from those roads and not have the road as an anchor, but still know. And it's funny being out there uh, with other people who are like, now which, because I'll say, you got to go to the north side and I'm going to push this way and you're going to meet me there. Wait, which is, no, which, which, which is north? And that, so that you just think, well, something's been lost. So in, in so many things in your book, it's like we've gained this, but we're losing this. And then how do we individually make those decisions about uh, um, how, how, to f- how, to, how to regain the stuff we've lost or, or how to let it go and be okay with letting it go? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the biggest questions, isn't it? And no one is going to retain all of the things that are being lost without also forfeiting almost all of what the future offers and, you know, going and living an isolated hermit life, frankly. But um, as, as, as you know, having read the book and as you sort of just alluded to, engaging the physical world on a regular basis without the help of your pocket computer is an excellent way to both hone your abilities and to assess whether or not you've lost the ones that you already had. And, you know, per- personally, I think that physical map reading is a critical skill. And I don't know that either of our children actually actually have it. And it hadn't occurred to me until you just said that, um, that, that I'm not sure, you know, when I open a gazetteer, for instance, just to look, you know, just for a road trip, they look at me a little quizzically. And in general, <clears throat> in general, they don't have that reaction to uh, the old technology that we still have around. They appreciate it. They understand that it may be valuable. But given that there is a map on the phone, what what would be the benefit of having a larger physical thing in space? I, I can't point to it in that case. Uh, I can point to the value of opening up a large topo map on a big surface and being able to, you know, see more mm-hmm. uh, than it, what is on a tiny screen. But the actual like physical holding of the paper, I'm not sure. And I, you know, maybe there is no value. But part of the lesson of the book is many of the things about which we cannot point to the value right now will have hidden value. And uh, we are often foolish to get rid of them just because we can't currently identify what it was that it was doing for us. I mean, I think really the the most important thing about 
about paper maps is they teach extreme patience when you have to fold them back up. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, this is a fascinating conversation, actually, because think about what we've just done, right? We all look at our phones, and because there's a certain amount of wisdom uh, amongst us, we think, well, what have we lost because mm -hmm. we can't read maps anymore? But maps are an arbitrary place in technological history, too, right? Right. And the fact is, you know, Aboriginal Australians have a system of navigating by song in which they sing at a particular regular pace. And the song contains information about, you know, this stump and that peak. And the point is the song actually allows you to physically navigate across space, even if you've never been there because you can pick up the song. So anyway, that's a marvelous evolved technology for people who never had paper. Um, but one, one important distinction um, between, say, you know, that and the most moderns and say what Tony is describing in South Dakota is that um, in the case of, who did you say it was, Aboriginals in Yes, in Australia. In Australia. Yeah. Um, and uh, Tony, you having a, a sense of the compass because you are familiar with the roads and because you are now so familiar with the landscape that you really are intuiting what where the landscape is, is that is that the user, the person in the landscape is actually contributing some of their analysis to an understanding of the landscape as well. Whereas the, the phone model, as with almost everything else that comes out of the phone, is entirely, a, it makes of the user entirely a consumer. There is no ability to produce, to create, to analyze, to say, actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this other thing. And in fact, we have all had our phones try to override us when we do try to you know, stake out on our, you know, go out on our own in some little way that it is not, it is not prescribed for us. Yeah, I, I agree. There is some that we are all reacting to something about, you know, it is not an arbitrary new way in which we navigate. It is an infantilizing mm -hmm. way. It cultivates yeah. helplessness. And yes. so anyway, this actually leads very much uh, into your wheelhouse because the right answer to this, at least at one level, or the first thing, the first right answer is, of course, some kind of Sabbath from these devices so that every single person is regularly reminded of how helpless they are without it and cultivates the basic skills of how you would navigate a world without such things. And I will point out that when we were college professors, we used to take students to a marvelous place called Sun Lakes in Eastern Washington. It's a fantastic. It's like a mini Grand Canyon with the most amazing and heart-wrenching scientific story behind the discovery of its formation. But never mind, one of the things that was so great about it was that you could dead reckon that the nature of the environment was such that you didn't need a map. You didn't need a phone. Phones, in fact, didn't work. The cell service was, was extremely poor. And so we would cultivate in our students a desire to navigate around this large wilderness by, you know, looking at objects above the horizon that they could key off of. In fact, we even had them navigating at night without a headlamp, which is surprisingly doable. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, most people, I think you can go a whole lifetime and never realize that you as a homo sapien have been uh, built not to be helpless at night. 
You mm-hmm. certainly don't have your mm-hmm. full toolkit, but the idea that if your flashlight goes out and it's dark, you know, it's going to take your eyes a few minutes to adjust, but then you actually have enough tools to navigate even then. So these lessons are all deducible, but what you need is something like a religious tradition that says for a week, a year, for a day, a week, whatever it is, you need to not use that tool so you can build up the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Just one more thing with regard to night and navigation. Um, it's the rare night that is so dark outside that it's actually impossible to navigate um, unless your eyes are attuned to the artificial lights, right? In our, in our homes, it's actually, it, it's actually very hard to navigate at night without any light at all, um, especially if you've recently moved any furniture around. <laughs> um, but, but, but at night, really, as long as, as, long as there aren't you know, houses or other things nearby that are beaming little bits of light. If you are actually in a place that doesn't have any any light pollution, um, it's it's remarkable. And I mean, you you're well aware of this. Yeah. And presumably, many of your your audience will be as well. But uh, most moderns, most weird people, you know, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic um, people in those countries will have the sense that actually nighttime is not just. Uh, kind of hard, but maybe impossible mm-hmm. that we actually can't. And I think that's that's one of the things that's being lost too, is that we are being constrained and constrained and constrained by these technologies that promised an opening. And in fact, we're having doors closed on us mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. recognizing it. Yeah. I like, you know, you have these call out boxes throughout the book that give very kind of down to earth, uh, you know, examples of things people can do to make their lives better based on the research and 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 kind of data driven writing that you do in the in the heart of every chapter, and one of them's like uh, go take walks on nights when there's a full moon, and I thought this is interesting. Um, so I'm I'm an adult onset hunter. I didn't grow up hunting. My dad didn't hunt. My <laughs> grandfathers didn't hunt. I I just felt compelled to hunt. And in my late 20s, a guy uh, who was at the church I was serving as a youth pastor was a big-time duck hunter. He took me out, and then he took me pheasant hunting, and, and I, it's be, just become a, a really central component of my life and my, my identity. And I found so many touch points in the book and on this particular topic. Persons who hunt spend so much time, two things, paying attention to two things. One, moon phases, because animals eat by moon phase cycles and you can get an app on your phone that kind of shows when the animal feeding times are supposed to be and the other thing is a lot of what we do is at dawn and dusk so if you're uh both duck hunting and deer hunting you're allowed to fire shoot uh, your weapon uh from 30 minutes before dawn until dusk so a lot of times if you're duck hunting or deer hunting, you need to be in your duck blind or your deer stand an hour before because you want to be in your stand quiet so for 30 minutes at least so that the kind of the woods settled back down and your presence is unknown when it's 30 minutes before sunrise and you can start to pay attention to animals being around you. And, and I'll just also say that so many hunters you will talk to will say um, they're so in touch with nature when they're sitting in a duck blind and the sun is rising and you're waiting for the hunt to begin. Um, 
And I think a lot, yeah, it's, it, it's one of the things that drew me to hunting is those, those, what do you, you would call them the, the shoulder times of the day, the dawn and the dusk when, when a lot of our activity happens. Animals don't move at midday. It's dead at noon. It's dead. No ducks are flying. No deer are moving around. That's, so that's when you go in and eat, take a nap, and then you go back out for the dusk. So I wonder, just not, no question in there, but what, if you have, you, have, you have thoughts or you can riff on that. Yeah, so many. Um, one of my identities is as an animal behaviorist, and it's um, one of the things that I taught the most, that I loved teaching the most when I was a college professor. And I was not surprised to find that so many of my most intuitive and insightful animal behavior students were also hunters. Mm. And some of some of their colleagues, some of their peers were surprised because we, you know, much of modern pop culture anyway has an idea uh, that hunting is you know, violent, aggressive, unobservational, right? <clears throat> only only about the kill. And all you have to do is have spent time around really any animals, even your own pets, to recognize that you're not going to be able to get close enough. Um, to do what you're interested in doing unless you have an idea of what is in that animal's head. You have to have a kind of theory of mind, to some degree anyway, of, of what it is that the animals are doing, and, and better yet, if you have a concept of why. And so, sure, the goal of an animal behavior project and a day spent hunting are different at one level. Um, but many of, many of, I think, the intrinsic personality traits that you need in order to be good at either of them are the same, which does require um, not just a patience and an ability to be still and to still not just your body, but your brain. Um, because you know, if, you're, if your brain's just going, it's going to be very hard to actually fully still your body and to make yourself invisible to the forest. You know, this thing that you say about being in your blind a half an hour before you expect to be able to see anything real in order to leave time for the forest to still around you. This sounds exactly, I mean, I, I feel like I've used exactly that phrase when I've been describing um, what students will need to do as they go into, you know, the landscape in Sun Lakes, or I used to take students um, to the tropics. Our, you know, our very last, our second last year teaching, we spent 11 weeks in Ecuador with students and had them in the Amazon. And, you know, this, it feels if you're not familiar with the Amazon, if you only have sort of the Disney version in your head or even, you know, the nature documentary version in your head, it's just all happening all the time, right? And you're, you know, you, you're spinning around seeing all of the things that are happening. But of course, not only is that not true, but it is less true the more recently you walked into that space. Even if you were quiet, you need to sit and obscure yourself and be totally quiet for a while before you will notice, oh, there is a herd of peccary. Oh, there are woolly monkeys. Ah, look at these parrots. And you know, sometimes the parrots, the peccaries, the woolly monkeys, I picked three of the most loud, raucous, fearless organisms out there. Like sometimes you'll see them regardless, but you'll see even more of those the quieter you are and the more you can bring yourself into a place of, actually, this isn't about me. Like I have to disappear into this space in order to experience what it is. Yeah, uh, two, two things I want to add. One, you almost always hear them before you see them too. Oh. This is quite counterintuitive, yeah. um, but at least, at least in a tropical forest, um, it can be a long time after you know that those creatures are there before you lay an eyeball on them. Which means even just like the suck of your boots in the mug yeah. and the mug in the mud can obscure 
Um, so you have to be totally still. You have as to well. yes, and 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 know what you're listening for because it, it can be subtle. But the other thing I, I do want to neither of us hunt, but um, the uh, I, there is a kind of Yahoo hunting out there yeah. that is not about insight into animals, right? It always right. troubled me, you know, that there was this debate in Michigan while we were there about you know baiting bears. Right mm-hmm. here, you have this highly intelligent animal, and you want to, you know, put a lure out there and get it close to you, and then you know, uh, fell it. And that just seems, um, you know, unsporting at the very least, and requires nothing because effectively you're you're hijacking, you know, its desire for food in order to make the hunt easy, rather than figuring anything out about the creature. But I agree that within the the realm of those who understand animals in order to to find them and hunt them, you do get the same kind of animal behavior insight. I will also say, for my part, I don't know how much it satisfies the the hunting uh, itch, but um, as a photographer mm-hmm. who focuses mostly on animals, it really is the how much do I understand about that creature in order that I can place myself where it's going to be you know, before it arrives. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very interesting skill to teach yourself. That's interesting. And it's really three, three very different things in some ways, photography, hunting, and animal behavior, um, all of which share this foundational requirement. uh, If if you're doing nature photography, um, that you understand where you are and what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a, I I agree with you, Brad, about the, um, there are in in the hunting world, like in so much else, but one of the things I've appreciated about the hunting world is there are very open, candid conversations about ethics that honestly, like even in ministry, I didn't find in the church. No, we, we didn't sit around church staff meeting and talk about ethics, but in the hunting community, there's all sort, and some of them are regulated by state wildlife agencies and, and others of them are just like, you don't shoot a duck on the water. It's legal, but you just don't do it. You know, like it, that's, it's not, there's this ethic called the fair chase. And part of the ethic of fair chase is that the animal always has a means of escape. You don't box an animal in, you don't pin it up. You don't, you don't fence it in and then pin it against the fence and shoot it. Um, and baiting, that's another one, you know, uh, that some states allow it, some states, some states don't. I, I wonder on the hunting, well, Brett, first of all, I wanted to ask you, because you said you had a very brief answer, an ongoing debate on this podcast has been, do Jews hunt, or why Jews don't hunt? Now, you're supposed to say, Jews don't hunt, and I'm supposed to say, so I gather. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, I wonder if, and you don't, you kind of, you briefly mentioned this in the book, but it's not a major topic of, of thought. It is for me though, is, is the industrialization of meat part of the way that our adaptability and evolution has outstripped maybe it, what it should do because we've lost touch with, well, the, the fact of the matter is uh, we're predators, right? We're carnivores and we're predators. And most people, the vast majority of people still eat meat. I think the the um, the last study I read showed that the the you would think 
there were more vegetarians in America than there are because they kind of have a bigger media footprint. But actually, the percentage of vegetarians in America is stuck at about 5%. And it hasn't really budged for 40 years or something like this. And about 10% of Americans hunt or fish. Um, so mm-hmm. there's an, you know, an argument to be made that that 15% of Americans have more in common because they actually un- have some kind of put some kind of value in the life of the animal that maybe people who just eat industrialized meat don't. And I, and I, and I agree with Ted Nugent on nothing politically, (laughs) your former fellow Michigan, Michigander, except he does say every American should have to butcher one chicken a year if they're going to eat chicken. So I wonder if you two have thought about that as, uh, as we've evolved kind of past our need to butcher our own meat, to kill our own buffalo, to wring the neck of a chicken, uh, where that leaves us and how, how, what we've lost and what we might regain. Oh, we have, we have lost so much. And of course, the scale at which we live, the numbers that we have preclude everyone from hunting their own meat or even growing their own meat, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, despite the title of the book, it's not a book about hunting or gathering. Right. Uh, you know, we chose a moment in our history to name the book after. And, it, and as, as we've said elsewhere, and we say in the book, you know, we could have called it an agriculturalist's guide to the 21st century or post-industrialist's guide, all, you know, each of which are true moments in time about our human history. But I'm reminded of um, back when we were college professors, there is a full year program that I was not teaching, but I was invited to give a guest lecture in at the side of a pig being butchered. Mm. Uh, I was I was I was brought in to talk about pig anatomy as these students, year long program on food, um, had basically done uh, done what you're talking about. Many of whom had arrived as you know they had been chefs or they had been farmers, but many of them had just been you know K through twelve in the suburbs and arrived at college and now for the first time had been involved in the slaughter and now the butchering and then the making into the various cuts and the sausage. And then, you know, that evening we ate some of that Mm -hmm. pig, you know, we went from a live animal to, to dinner at the end of the day and it was extraordinary. And the fact that most, most Americans have no idea, much less have actually had their hands on it, you know, have, have, have been forced to take responsibility for actually, if I'm going to eat this, I have to understand that, um, that there is a kind of metaphorical blood on my hands and that's got to be okay with me if I'm going to, if I'm going to eat the way that I do. I think we can also see that there's something beyond the simple fact of people not having contact with these animals and not having an understanding that meat is something other than just a substance that it it comes from these creatures which of course we all know intellectually but not viscerally but once we have a system in which we are delivered meat divorced from the animal it also creates the hazard that we will then start treating these animals terribly while they are alive and i think we would deal very differently with this food if we understood that not only are we responsible for the death of the creatures, which is a tolerable, uh, a tolerable thing, but we are also responsible for their mistreatment. 
which is not tolerable and also completely unnecessary. Um, so it is, it is the rationalization that starts with the divorce of the muscle from the creature that ends with these uh, abominable conditions that these creatures face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, there's a couple of ways I'd like to get into uh, Chesterton's fence with the two of you on this actual topic of hunting. And one is this, um, to your point, I mean, an extension of your point, it, it, an extension of our where we've gone as a culture is that, you know, we rely on the government to make sure that our food isn't laden with bad bacteria and, you know, et cetera. Now it's interesting when you when you hunt, and I've I've been having these conversations with guys recently because I'm a strong proponent, as are a lot of wild game chefs, in hanging meat. So I hang my meat for an extended period of time. Like I will hang um, pheasants in my suburban front yard. <laughs> I had twenty pheasants hanging there for four or five days before I butcher them, and there's all sorts of research that's gone into it. But it makes people so squeamish that these are unrefrigerated birds. They still have their, you know, guts. I haven't gutted them or anything. And in, it's funny because in France, what they do is they hang ducks and pheasants in a barn, and they basically allow them to rot. And when the neck snaps and the duck falls to the ground, that's when they know the duck is ready to be plucked. Wow. And there's actually, the, those ducks are full of bacteria, but they're not bad bacteria. You talk about it regarding cheese. Um, yeah. But it's the same with, with uh, hunting wild game. And I wonder again, if we've, we're removing fences that were there for a reason that our ancestors intuited and knew, and they didn't write them down in textbooks. It just got passed from generation to generation. And then at some point along the line, we pass some threshold. It's like, no, 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 you no. like I will leave meat out on the counter. And, and my wife who eats a ton of wild game and loves that I hunt, it makes her very uncomfortable when I leave meat on the counter. And I'm like, that meat is not, I could leave that meat on that counter for three days and it would be fine when we cook it. But that's, anyway, I wonder if that's a Chesterton's fence that we've removed uh, in this whole industrialization of meat. Yes, for sure. And, and maybe also, you can explain, sorry, in, in your answer what to the listeners what, it, what Chesterton's fence is. Yeah, let, let me first say it's also an extrapolation. It's an, another example of an over-extrapolation of a true thing. It feels to me like fear of all bacteria emerges from the accurate observation that the germ theory of disease explains so much of how and why we get sick. But from there, we jumped to, therefore, all things that are smaller than we can see must be out to get us and capable of getting sick. And it was, you know, uh, boy, germ theory of disease is from at least a couple hundred years ago. I can't remember exactly. Uh, it basically dawns in 1859 as Pasteur demonstrates okay. that uh, all life comes from other life and therefore it uh, suggests microbes. Yes. So we are more than 100 years later <clears throat> before the microbiome of humans that is so necessary is understood at all. And we're still not quite there. So we still have this very binary thinking of like, if, you know, if, if microbes then bad, and now we've just created a, a, a slightly more nuanced version of that, which is if microbes then bad or good, not understanding that it's going to be context dependent. So 
uh, Chesterton's Fence is the observation by uh, G.K. Chesterton, early mid 20th century uh, political philosopher, that if you have two people walking down a road and they come across a fence, one of them says, ah, oh, this is in my way, let's get rid of it. The other one should say, and all of us should say, ah, not yet. You have to inform me first. You have to figure out and be able to explain what that fence's purpose was before you so so quickly get rid of it. Uh, Because we too too often get rid of things when we cannot immediately identify what their function is, and uh, then they will be sometimes impossible to put back in. So I wanted to pick up on this question about um, meat and your almost certainly right that there will be many traditions and they may be very counterintuitive that a pheasant that is rotting uh, is actually safe for the same reason that cheese, which is dairy that has rotted in a careful way, uh, is also safe. So, you know, the hallmark is going to be, have people been doing that for hundreds, maybe thousands of years? If so, undoubtedly there is wisdom in it, even if nobody can explain it. On the other hand, let's see how easily this gets disrupted, right? Mm -hmm. So you say you are comfortable because you're a hunter and you have this experience with hanging meat in an unrefrigerated way and bacteria gets in it and it doesn't harm you. That feels safe and you can extrapolate to meat on the counter. But can you? That's the question Hmm. because meat on the counter is not like meat that you have hunted and hung in your barn or your front yard. And let me give you uh, a distinction I would draw. You could have a steak, and that steak is going to have a surface, and that surface is going to be, uh, it's going to encounter bacteria, and they will grow on it, and then you're going to cook it. And even if you cook it um, uh, so that it's rare, you will have cooked the outer surface so that it is sufficiently hot that those bacteria will not survive. Now, what if we say, okay, it's ground beef. Now you've got a new problem because rare meat is delicious. Rare hamburger does not have the same distinction between surface and interior because by grinding it up, you take things that were on the surface and therefore may well have been infested with bacteria and you move them to the inside where you're not going to cook them very hot. So you could get those bacteria. Now you could say, well, the bacteria in the environment that will grow on the meat aren't particularly dangerous. Maybe that's true. That meat, though, came from a factory where workers who may or may not have washed their hands after they came out of the bathroom will have handled the meat and then it will be ground up so that Mm -hmm. things are internalized. I noticed years ago, actually, that a package of ground beef from Trader Joe's actually indicated that it might contain the meat of many animals, in fact, from multiple different continents, right? So the point is, meat in the form of steak is not the same risk as meat in the form of ground up steak is not the same as meat ground up in an industrial process that compiled animals from different parts of the world. And it's also possibly true that meat sitting on a counter inside an enclosed space um, has a selective pressure for some bacteria that won't be good for you in, in a way that meat sitting on a counter, say in a barn with a much greater flow through of air, uh, would not. Could well be. Um, and you know, there's also, so many things could be true, but the point is there isn't going to be a hard and fast rule. Whereas there was, it was almost certainly true that if you were treating meat in the same way that your grandparents and their grandparents did, it was probably fine. Um, 
but we have to note where we've actually started to do something novel that doesn't feel like that big a difference that could change things radically. It's it's like when you go to uh, Italy, you know, I've been to Italy many times and I've led some groups there and you will go into a store any just even a grocery store and there will be 30 prosciuttos hanging from the ceiling unrefrigerated pork yes. which in to an american you're like no uh, it, pork it's the most dangerous of all the meats not to refrigerate and they're like no they cure it in salt and then they hang it for a year and then what you know what it's freaking delicious <laughs> well it's amazing yeah. how much of cuisine is actually cryptic preservation and sanitization techniques that we don't mm. understand in that form because prosciutto is delicious right and it seems yeah. like you know that flavor is about making it tasty when the point is it's tasty because this was an excellent technique for ridding it of things that are harmful to you and keeping it around longer yeah, which sugar. I've also heard smoking is is a similar like smoking oh, was used to keep bugs off of food and the human our our tastes evolved to the way that now you go to your grocery store and you can buy liquid smoke that you can put <laughs> in your sloppy joes to mimic the taste of I have a smoker I smoke I smoked uh, eight pheasants yesterday I smoke a ton of meat but that our our tastes adapted to this food preservation technique. Well, I was. It's an indicator that something has gone right. And now we can mm. take the indicator and just pour it on, which means it's no longer which, an indicator of anything. It's not, it's yeah. no longer an honest indicator. Yeah. Now I am crazy enough to believe that this is actually also the explanation for why a traditional margarita has salt on the rim. Oh. Um, that uh, a margarita is in great danger of having a fly that may have landed on you know, a dog turd somewhere and then landed on your margarita and walked around the rim of the glass. And the idea is that the salt is actually a preservation technique, which now we come, you know, we can be in the winter having margaritas indoors and, in, you know, downtown Portland. Yeah. And you still want the salt on the rim because that's how, that's how a real margarita is. And it's maybe why you put a lime in a Corona to keep the bugs out of coming into the, the bottle of well, I mean, in, beer. In fact, the Corona itself is a mechanism for preserving a, uh, a, a volatile food substance over a long period. Uh, you yeah. know, so yeah, all no, of these, as, as you say in the book, as you say in the book, it's a, it's a, it's a pint glass full of bread. Basically. I wonder, I, I'm, Okay, on on wildlife and game, I have a question if there's a if there's a converse of Chesterton's fence when we add fences that we shouldn't add. So you use the mongoose and there's so we we are right now as an outdoorsman there are so many things going on. Out by you, they're removing dams from rivers because the dams had stopped fish from being able to reach their own spawning grounds. And in the past, they've built these steps and they've tried to, nothing works. They're just removing dams, which is making people mad because they're used to the dams now. And the dams were good for other things like whitewater rafting or different types of fish or things like this. Oh, here, well, the, the feds uh, just delisted wolves. So the wolf is no longer a protected species. The state of Wisconsin, a, a very uh, a very conservative state in, in their legislature, immediately ordered the Wisconsin DNR to have a wolf hunt, like a week after the wolf was delisted in the spring, which is not even a time you would hunt wolves. And they 
killed over their quota of wolves right away. And now there's legal action this fall to allow more wolf hunting. There are a lot of hunters in Minnesota, maybe more on the Yahoo side of hunters, who they want to kill their white-tailed deer every year. And there's uh, now that the wolves have rebounded, we have a competitive predator in the woods. And a wolf eats about 20 white-tailed deer a year, one wolf. So if you have a lot of wolves in, in the woods of central and northern Minnesota, you're going to have less white-tailed deer. So now these guys want, well, let us shoot the wolves because they don't want to shoot the wolves for the meat. They want to shoot the wolves so they can shoot the deer for the meat and for the big trophy racks. And we could go on and on about introduced species that were introduced in order to solve a problem, eat a bug, and they and they introduced like it, so I'm wondering what's that what's that converse to Chesterton's fence and and do you see a way through for for particularly these wildlife management agencies uh, that are so political um, and being run by biologists and yet are still political uh, and if you've got any thoughts on on that. Yeah, several. I mean, the converse of Chesterton's fence is the precautionary principle. And it is near and dear to us because we study complex adaptive systems. And one thing that complex adaptive systems will teach you is that to the extent that you think you have an idea for how to improve the damn thing, you're going to interfere and then you're going to discover an incredible cascade of unintended consequences. Some of them may be good, but lots of them will not be. And the, you know, the naivete that it takes to walk into such a system and disrupt it and think that the likely outcome is something better is, uh, is incredible. So I would say, you know, in some sense, I'm sympathetic to the idea of, um, you know, these people uh, wish to be able to hunt the wolves in order that they can hunt the deer. You know, if we want to say, well, all right, uh, how good are you at, you know, flint napping arrows and, uh, and spear tips? And, you know, would you, would you be willing to hunt that way? You know, of course there is a movement towards bow hunting, which is a step in that direction. I know, I know guys who hunt with addle addles and really <sighs> well, go that, back. Yeah. That's, that's the thing is there, there is a desire. Everybody wants to step the system back to the place that makes them happiest. Uh -huh. Rather, you know, my feeling is. Uh, you're probably good to, you know, engage in clear cutting if you do it with a machete, right? Um, <laughs> it's a self-limiting process. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to use one of these industrial machines that can, you know, that can chop and strip uh, a tree in 30 seconds, then the point is, well, there's no self-regulation there. You're using mm -hmm. fossil fuels from an ancient habitat to fuel a machine that turns this into an industrial process, you know, you could denude the world and, you know, in a matter of years. So, um, you know, at some level, what we are looking for is equilibria that work. They will not likely be ancient equilibria. Even it turns out, you know, we used to think the Amazon was this large, uh, untouched wilderness. And it turns out that's nonsense. It's been repeatedly interfered with at a large scale by many populations, but there's an overall equilibrium and it's a good one. It's a highly diverse equilibrium. So what we should be looking for is equilibria that, um, self-maintain and that are tolerant to our challenges to them, right? A regime in which you have to hunt 
you know, X creature in order that you can hunt Y creature is an unhealthy system, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, we need to be wiser about this rather than, you know, look at our fancy weapons and think that's the animal I want to shoot. And uh, if there aren't enough of them because there are too many of this other animal that, you know, predates any of us being here, then that animal's got to go, right? That's a, that's a, a, a human centric uh, viewpoint at a level that I don't, you know, human centric as we are, I don't think that's defensible. Yeah. Last question it, it is, uh, I mean, I could talk to you two for hours and hours, but I'll, I'll limit it to this based on, on this, th- this idea of self-regulation, which, um, you know, as somebody who comes from the Christian tradition and was, went to seminary and was a pastor of a church, this is in many ways, though, these ideas of self-regulation for so long have been carried by religion. And we're seeing basically the death the death of religion as we know it before our eyes, like the, you know, less people and now coming out of COVID, even less people are going to church and, and affiliating with any organized religion. Like it's, it it's as, it's as dramatic a social change as the acceptance of gay marriage was like, it's one of the most rapid social changes in the history of the West is the, the death of religion. Um, how do we regulate that then, especially in a time when there's so much distrust of government? I see, I got in an argument with a guy yesterday because he thinks chronic wasting disease among the Minnesota deer is a government hoax and it's bullshit. And it's just a way that Biden is trying to take away our guns by telling us all the deer are sick so that deer hunting will die off as a pastime and then they can. Um, have less, there will be less guns in our culture. It's ridiculous stuff, but this is just part of the, I, you know, this is just in in the air right now. So how do we self-regulate whether it's, whether it's, should we, or should we not be able to hunt wolves or even I'll give you another very, uh, uh, an example of a guy I know who bought a high powered rifle to hunt elk. And he now has, um, so he has a spotting scope that is digital and it will tell, it'll spot. Um, it's like, uh, if, if you're not a hunter, but maybe if you golf, you know, people use these measurement, uh, lenses that say how far the shot is to the hole. So this will tell him, oh, that elk is 852 yards away. And then by Bluetooth, that spotting scope, which is like a binoculars will give a reading to his rifle scope and the rifle scope then will adjust the crosshairs to, um, you know, uh, uh, make up that distance because the bullet drops, of course, loses velocity and drops by gravity over that 850 yards. So you have to aim certain amount above the animal. He no longer has to calculate that as you had to in the old days the scope just fixes that for him so he can at 853 yards pull the trigger and he has a a shot now in some ways you might argue well that's it's a lethal shot so it's actually more humane than making a bad shot and just crippling the animal that runs off and suffers and dies in another way but on the other hand you say that gives an extraordinary advantage to the human in this predator prey situation so all that laying this on you, this, this ethical question as, as, uh, 
you know, biologists, how do we as a culture navigate the, these questions? Um, well, you've got a, a bind, and I think the key thing is to recognize the bind. On the one hand, the death of religion that you report is somewhat accurate, but the problem is there is a religiosity to us for evolutionary reasons that is causing it to be replaceable by something that is uh, extremely dangerous, which is to say a religious-style belief that has not stood the test of time. Hmm. In effect, what we are doing is allowing cults to replace religions. Um, religions have all stood the test of time, and that means they contain wisdom. The problem is, if you think back to the beginning of our conversation and, and what we said about hypernovelty, we don't live in the environments in which religions evolved. And so it is not the case that we need to preserve religions because they contain the wisdom, because in many cases that wisdom doesn't apply at best or has inverted because of the new technology that we have at our disposal. So the question really is, how do we bootstrap something that preserves the wisdom that's contained in religious traditions, adds to it the wisdom that isn't in those traditions that needs to be there without defaulting into this cult layer, which is absolutely a threat to our capacity to continue as a species. Well, I would add to that something that may be slightly, slightly in conflict <clears throat> with what you just said, Brett, because I think um, the description of religion's value being in terms of the wisdom that it brings forward from the past into the future seems largely like an individual level value. And of course, one of the key losses that I think the West is experiencing now, in part as a result of the death of religion, of, of, of people no longer identifying as religious and specifically not going into houses of worship and spending time with other people on a reliable basis, is a loss of community. So, um, you know, community and cult may be flip sides of the same kind of thing, but religion as an organizing principle, wherein you say, well, if it's Saturday or if it's Sunday or if it's Wednesday, whatever it is, then I go here and I see these people with whom I have a past and with whom I will have a future. Uh, that helps us be more human with one another, even the people who are not in that community. And, you know, Brett and I are secular. We come from different religious traditions and, and neither of our households were religious growing up. Um, so we, you know, we never had that. Uh, but we see the value in it. And we know many religious people who, you know, more easily find that community because there is an organizing principle there. And, you know, we, we talk in the book about literally false metaphorically true beliefs. Yes. And we, you know, we understand um, much of the particulars of many of the major religions to be in that category. Um, and part of what they bring is the ability to find one another and to hold one another's feet to the fire at some level. Yeah. The problem though, is that the structure that you are handed in the form of an ancient religion is typically built around a lineage and it sure. functions because there is a, a higher authority that says these things should be avoided and those things should be embraced. And, you know, those lists of what should be avoided and what should be embraced uh, are now out of date. Right. The problem is if the point is, well, we need something to gather us then we will gather around other things. And what you effectively have is, for example, um, a cult of people who believe that um, 
mRNA vaccination is a hallmark of moral goodness. And what they are uniting around is the idea of persecuting people who don't subscribe to that belief, right? All of it completely divorced from any scientific reality. And so my point would be gathering is good, but it is only good if you gather around something like a set of principles that are actually robust and that people are therefore afraid to violate. And, um, you know, yeah. I, I don't know which I fear more. I, I think I fear the cult landscape more than a landscape in which people adhere to uh, archaic beliefs that are out of date. It, yeah. it is more yeah. dangerous, but both of them are hazards. Yeah, because surely the people who gathered at the Capitol on January 6th felt a sense, some sense of community, right? And they gathered because these are like-minded people. We believe the same stuff, but it's dangerous bullshit, you know? And so... It's so excellent example. I mean, it's so, so tricky. It's so tricky. And also, I'll just say that I think you two are rare in the field of uh, what do we call the hard sciences to embrace things that are literally false, but metaphorically true. Because I, I don't think most of your peers who are teaching undergrads the hard sciences are saying to those undergrads, look, there is such a thing as a metaphorical truth, and it's just as valid and valuable to us as a species as the things that are literally true that we can prove in a research or in a laboratory. And that's that seems like a big fork in the road for, our, for us moving forward. Yeah, no, it's become... Um almost required, like maybe even a shibboleth of being on the left, of being, you know, blue uh, politically um, to issue religion. Yeah. And that that is a mistake. Well, the, the funny thing, though, is that if you just take it on its merits, if you were to land here as an alien and try to understand our species, you would instantly grasp that these religious traditions, these long-standing things that govern people's behavior have to be adaptive, mm. right? It's, mm -hmm. it's so clearly right that it's almost a tautology. And yet we find mainstream evolutionists engaged in what is effectively a religious resistance to that obvious observation in which they imagine that somehow, uh, a confusion has spread like wildfire and characterized the entirety of human history, right? That's a nonsense position. Yeah. It's not even metaphorically true. It's just nuts. And yet <laughs> uh, we are the heterodox ones for just simply saying what I think is completely obvious, which is it is a little hard to say how religions work by stating things that are at odds with a laboratory understanding of the world. Nonetheless, they clearly do serve humans and have served humans, which accounts for their ubiquity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I look, you too, it's been fantastic. There's so, I have so many other things I wanted to talk to you about, like the loaves and fishes, but we didn't get to them. Um, uh, maybe another time we'll be able to continue our conversation. But boy, I really hope people pick up your book and tune into your podcast. Um, it, I think the work you're doing is really fascinating. So thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's really been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.